now we're going to discuss the idea of love and true love as according to God and his word. So let's start by defining love. This is one of these amazing English words that can mean a thousand different things. Do you know how many words typically are translated love in the original language that the Bible, the New Testament was written in? How many words in Greek are there for love commonly? Four. Anybody read a famous title about the four loves by a Christian author in the 20th century? Anybody? The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. It's a great read if you haven't. He talks about the four different words that the Greeks used to describe love, and certainly there could be more. We, unfortunately, are at a disadvantage in English because how many words do we have for love? We got, we got love and what's the other one? You said two? Oh, you said one. I thought I heard someone say two. I was like, that's news to me. <laughs> Second word, let's, let's hear it. Um, yeah, we basically have one, right? How would you define love in the English language? How would you describe love? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just wanting to hear and, and honestly display the breadth of this concept in this word. How would you define love? Go ahead and raise your hand and I'll repeat it so everybody could hear it. Affection. What else? Yes. Selfless. Okay. What else? Anything that you really, really like, like pizza. Now, is that like or is that like-like? Because, you know, those are different, right? Because if you like like pizza, that's a different conversation than if you just like pizza. Yes, ma'am. Unconditional? Okay. What else? Yes. I'm sorry? Devotion. Devotion. Yes. Compassion. So we're coming up with a lot of descriptor words. Let's put some more meat on the bone. Use a sentence, not just other words, but how would you describe love? How would you define love? Yes. God is love, God in the creation. A feeling, so an emotion that leads you and motivates you to be willing to do whatever for the object of your love, okay? So, there, so this is the idea of sacrifice, right? Self-sacrifice, yes. Okay, doing things for others, right? Putting aside your own desires and will, etc. Yes. An undescribable feeling that runs through your, your veins. What else? Yes. A feeling of affection or concern. Maybe on that joystick, huh? What do you say, Joe? An action that compels us or, or a feeling that compels our action. You see how talented that brother is? He can not only manage the AV, but he can listen at the same time. That is a rare feat. Yeah, give it up for Joe. Joe's one of our newer brothers that was just baptized in the Lord not long ago, and I just appreciate seeing him serve and give. He's memorizing the Bible. It's been amazing to see him grow. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so she said, love maybe starts as a feeling or an emotion, but then it settles into a fact where other emotions maybe are unable to sway it. So maybe another way of putting that is that it is an emotion that perhaps trumps all others. Okay, what else? Yes, sir. Okay, so value, right? So he said something that we do to serve someone because we think they matter. So it's about love is about valuing someone or something, right? Yes, last one. What did you just say? Oh, puppy. Hmm, 
Yes, indeed. You could argue that that was something other than love, but hey, you know, like puppy owners, beware, okay? Some might argue with stupidity, but hey, you know what? It's all good. You're up in the middle of the night. It's okay. Um, People have been trying to persuade me, my wife chief among them, to get a dog, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not getting a dog. Why is the church clapping for that? I don't get it. I don't need any more sleepless nights, guys. Come on. I got enough of those in my life as it is. All right, but you know what? Love may compel me, okay, which is why I don't get one, because I'll know. I know. All right, so um, yes, in the, in, the, in the biblical language, you know, in, in Koine Greek, the New Testament's written in love is described primarily by four terms. We are the disadvantage that we are using one word, but as you can see, it can mean a whole host of things, right? It's a, it's a word that represents a very rich and robust concept for us, and sometimes that can be not helpful, because it can mean so much, it can be so broad that we miss each other perhaps in our understandings and dealings and interactions with each other or cultures, populations, societies at large. You know, I remember when I was a younger man in my 20s, my late teens, my early 20s, I remember how badly I wanted to be loved and how badly I wanted to love someone else at least to the best of my ability as I understood love at that time. You know, I grew up in the era of MTV and BET. I grew up in an era of cable television that propagated a message of love to to sell me on a version of love that was incredibly selfish. It was incredibly based on pleasure and self-interest. I grew up around a family that was riddled with divorce and abuse. My understanding of love was shaped by certain things, as all of ours were. And later in my life, as I opened up the Word of God, my understanding of love started to shift and change and evolve and even be deconstructed. I started to see how shallow and hollow my understanding and experience of love was. And I was at the same time enthralled with hope of this new vision of love and at the same time challenged and convicted by how I had never really understood love at all. So let's look over in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to set up a few things here biblically that I hope will lead us into the later parts of the discussion. 1 John 4, this is a passage that I, you know, am very fond of and is near and dear to my heart. Verse 8, it's a very simple verse. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Let that just sit for a moment. God is love. God and love in the witness of the scriptures are synonymous. They're interchangeable. Any form or version of love that we believe and practice that is separated from who God is in his nature, in his character, is simply a counterfeit. It's a lie. Did you notice how we all defined love? None of them were directly or implicitly connected with God as a person, with who God is, what his nature is like, what his character is like, what his heart and desires are like. And yet for John, he says, God is love. Love fundamentally cannot be 
defined or exist apart from who God is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look here together. We have a saying in the Asheville church that we like for everyone's own eyes to lay on the scriptures for themselves. And so we will be opening the Bible quite a bit. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one to you. Just raise your hand and we'll bring a Bible to you. We had Bibles for a while that were like microscopic print. I mean, like I'm not that old, but I was like, dang, I can't even read that. So we got some larger print ones. So if you've ever picked up one of our old Bibles, we're, we're trying to move in a better direction for you and for me. And we even have more lights in the room. Isn't this amazing? It's like we're trying to create an environment conducive to reading the Bible. Who would have known? 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Again, a very famous passage that probably many of us have heard and know, read at weddings and other types of ceremonies quite often. As we read this, keep in mind what John just said. God is love. So every time you see this word love, it can actually be replaced with God. Love is patient. God is kind. Love does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered, and love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but God rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. As we're talking about true love, I want to do two things today. I want to deconstruct our counterfeit versions of love, and I want to help us to venture a bit further into the width, the, width, the breadth, the height, and the length of God's love. And to understand that love holistically and to know where our counterfeit loves, wherever they came from, from inside of us, from our families of origins, from the culture at large, wherever they come from, to be able to identify them and reject them. You know, here we see this description of love and therefore a description of God. Notice some of these descriptions of God. Rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't avoid conflict. That love is not self-seeking. That love doesn't love just to be loved in return. That love always protects. It means that love, that God is fierce and protects against danger and harm. God's love is very much unlike our love. On our best days, we hope to sort of become a bit of a shadow of this kind of love, right? At our best moments, we experience maybe some angle, some, some iteration of this love. And the scriptures say this is God eternally, always, all of it. He is never not this. God is so unlike us. You know, for me, I almost always equate love, especially in the counterfeit versions of love that I have been weaned on, I equate love with something that makes me feel good which inherently displays what's underneath that. Love is selfish. Love is about self. We dress it up and we flower it and we sprinkle sugar on the top to make it seem like, but no. At the bottom, many times for us, love is really about self. 
which is what gets connected to if it doesn't feel good, then it can't be loving. It can't be good. Have you noticed that that's like a predominant cultural narrative today? If it doesn't feel good, it is not good. The Bible has something to say about that. You know, one of the great disadvantages, I believe, of our culture and society today is that we do not want to suffer. We don't know how to suffer, and we definitely don't know how to suffer well. In fact, we believe inherently that we're not supposed to suffer, and that when we do suffer, something must be terribly wrong. And guess what? The Bible agrees with that part. There is something terribly wrong. But you know what's wrong? You and me. The Bible says that we are sinners, that we have rebelled against God, that we have broken everything and induced our own suffering and pain. That was not God's design. That was not God's desire. And guess what? He is recreating and he is on mission to restore that original intent. But man, we cause suffering, don't we? In little and huge ways. I've heard... An author put it this way, we have an easy button everywhere culture. Anybody ever seen the Staples commercial? You got to press the easy button, right? How many of you have actually pressed the Staples easy button? <laughs> Sam, all the, you know, guys in tech and administration, like Staples makes some things easy, right? Like there are some things in our technological age, you know, I'm up here with a laptop and I've got a smartphone in my pocket, and there are some things that technology does make easy, but at what cost? One of the costs, I believe, potentially, is that on a large scale, our entire culture is looking for an easy button everywhere. And what it does is it short circuits our ability to know how to suffer well. Because we're like, wait, where's the easy button? And when there's no easy button, we think something's fundamentally wrong, that perhaps God has abandoned us. We live in a culture of deception and lies that teaches all of us from the start that we all are supposed to be, or at least have the chance to be, rich and famous, prominent and important, adored and revered. You know what the truth is? It's not going to happen. The truth is, is that that's not going to happen for most all of us. And yet we believe these lies. Why? Because we want to be loved. There is something deep inside every human being that desires to be desired. The problem comes is when we seek to be desired by the wrong things. And because of these types of things, because of the desire to want to be loved, it creates a whole host of toxic, sinful approaches to satiate that desire, to meet that need. The own wickedness in our own hearts can cause us to become soft, not wanting to suffer, not knowing how to suffer. And when I mean soft, I don't mean soft in some sort of like neo-toxic masculinity type of way. I mean soft in a different way, in a way that we have come to perceive difficulty, challenge, strain, suffering. 
And this creates this thing in us that when we suffer, when we go through difficult things, the only thing that we know how to do is to try to escape as quickly as possible. Lord, get me out. What if God wanted you to pray, Lord, help me grow. Keep me here. I don't know about you, but I haven't prayed to stay in suffering that many times. That's the height, the length, the breadth of God's love. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to keep jumping around the Bible here as we try to unpack and expose this topic of true love. Hebrews 12 in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, let me just stop there and do a little exercise. Take 10 seconds and meditate on your struggle against sin. It's a gruesome picture for me. But in my struggle against sin, I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Not yet. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. The Hebrew writer is pulling from the Hebrew scriptures, right? From the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs in particular. And he says, you guys have forgotten. Remember remember what God said all those generations ago through the writer of Proverbs? And he says, man, don't lose heart. Don't spurn the Lord's discipline because he's treating you as a legitimate child. And now as a father for the last several years, I've started to understand this a bit more. How incredibly unloving it is if I do not discipline my children. It is so unloving. It's not easy. But true love is willing to go through the difficulty because I know it's for their good. You guys ever met somebody in life in their adult age that was not disciplined as a child? Life doesn't tend to go too well for them, does it? It's unloving. And the Bible says that God doesn't love us like that. He loves us enough to discipline us. And so the writer says, guess what you should do when you're disciplined? Endure. Endure hardship as discipline. Well, that's crazy. He just connected discipline with hardship. I thought we were talking about God's discipline, God's rebuke. And then the writer says, guess what? Hardship, difficulty, struggle, suffering. That's God's discipline. Well, I thought hardship was because of this person. It's like what Chris said, right? Like, I thought it was because of these people. Well, I thought discipline, I thought hardship, my struggle was because You know, I made some stupid choices. Yes, yes, and yes. However, he says, endure hardship as discipline. 
God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Oh, we know a great many number of them. We may even be some of them, like me. I was disciplined in some ways great by my family, in some ways not so great. And if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirit and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Uh Uh-oh. True love doesn't always feel good. This is one of the main counterfeit loves of the world and of our own hearts. We think love is supposed to always feel good. It does not. That doesn't mean that it's not good, though. And, you know, this actually became one of my favorite passages early on in my faith journey when I first became a Christian. I've had many of the younger brothers that I help disciple and mentor to memorize this passage. I don't know exactly why it was so meaningful to me other than, you know, growing up without my father and then growing up later with an abusive stepfather, I really didn't understand discipline. I didn't understand discipline for my good. I understood pain. I connected that part. The not, you know, what does it say? The not uh, pleasant. Yeah, that part. I kind of felt like I could connect with the not pleasant part of life and circumstance and people and discipline. But I had a really hard time with the part that says they, people, fathers, dads, humans, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. I thought, "Mm, is that really true? But God disciplines us for our good. I had never felt disciplined for my good. Now, some of it was, but it didn't feel that way to me. And then I connected with what this is saying. It's not going to feel good. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. And so that put me on a journey of learning how to deconstruct and reconstruct my belief about pain, about discomfort, about suffering. I had to learn that my love was so accustomed to being self-centered and self-seeking that love was really only me caring about me at the end of the day. And this reminds me that God's love doesn't always feel good and that I shouldn't think that something's inherently wrong, but quite the opposite, that when things are unpleasant and difficult, that it's actually proof that God is loving me. What a mind shift. What a change of perspective. You know, in the language here, I I, I think this is a little bit stronger for me. When we go back to the original language here, verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant. The word there is actually joyful. No discipline seems joyful, but lupe, sorrowful. Discipline actually creates sorrow. Anybody else think of any other passages that talk about sorrow? 
and types of sorrow. That's right. 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul picks up on this motif of sorrow. But here the Hebrew writer says God's discipline is not going to make you feel joyful, but going to make you feel sorrowful. Do you like feeling sorrowful? I mean, like we have a classification like in the DSM-5. They're like, this is wrong, bad, skewed. If you like feeling sorrowful, it's broken. Is it? God says that this discipline makes us sorrowful, but it produces something. You know, and then it says that in order for this thing to be produced, in order for this discipline to have the outcome that God wants, what do we have to do? We gotta be trained by it, right? How many of you guys like training? I got a one very like emphatic hand and then one kind of quasi hand. And for the viewers, we've got a room about 100 people. Two, one and a half, we'll call it. (laughs) Woo! We need to deconstruct some stuff. The Bible says that we must be trained. Do you know what that word trained is? Gymnasio. You know where we get our word gymnasium from? That one. Our word in English, gymnasium, comes from this Greek word translated here, training. Some of us, we hate the gym. We hate it with a passion. And I got some hands on that. Camera people, all right, I got some hands coming up now. Okay, yes, yes. I think this is where, for some of us, we fall so short of true love, biblically. We don't like training. We don't like the difficulty. We don't like the pain. We don't like the sweat. We don't like the struggle of the gym. Certainly not for long periods of time. I used to be a trainer for a while in the gym world. You know when the height of the gym's profits are in the annual season? January 1st, baby. January is a booming month for the gym industry. Guess what happens in June? Everybody getting fired because ain't no more clients around anymore. Maybe even by February, you know what I'm saying? We don't like continued struggle. We don't like it physically. And we certainly don't like it mentally or spiritually. And yet the Bible says that this is maybe what is robbing us from having a harvest, a bounty, a plenty of peace and righteousness, holiness, holy living. Have you connected that before? If you are not experiencing peace on a consistent basis, if you're not experiencing holiness and righteousness in a consistent way, the Bible says that you're not being trained. And you've got to ask yourself, am I willing to go into the spiritual gym with God knowing that it's going to not create chara, joy, but rather lupe, sorrow? How many times do you go into the gym and see people with big old fat smiles on their face? Never. Well, you do sometimes, but they usually don't look like they're being trained very much. And it's revealing, right? Like you go into the gym, you know who's there just to socialize because you can see it. And then you know who's there because they're like, oh, ah," you know, they're like, it's just a bunch of bad going on, you know, but it produces something. 
You know the writer here is using that same word picture to describe our spiritual lives. That we've got to endure training spiritually in order to produce harvests of righteousness and peace. Look over in John chapter 6. So as we're setting up this idea of true love, we're now going to take a look at Jesus How did Jesus love? What did this true love look like in real life with real people? I want to highlight just one particular angle of this love, okay? So disclaimer, okay, pay attention right now. Disclaimer, I'm not representing Jesus' love holistically, but a particular component of his love that I think is often lacking for me and for us. John chapter 6, verse 41. At this, his teachings, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I come down from heaven? That would be kind of confusing, right? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me, and no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Obviously, this is hearkening back to the Exodus story, right? If you're not familiar with the Old Testament. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You know, that's what we just did a few moments ago, partaking the Lord's Supper. Think about if you were hearing this for the first time. That sounds crazy. I don't know about you, but I try to like import myself into the story and like think, okay, what would I thought and trying to understand their context and background as best I can. And what would I thought? Yo, that's crazy. This dude was like, yeah, man, just, you know, take a little nibble. Here you go. Like what? And check this out. He says, Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. You don't say, really? Thanks, John. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? A valid question. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, and it's almost like he knows what they're thinking, you know? Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And just as the living Father sent me, and sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, what'd they do? Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 
Again, thank you, John. Okay. Hello, McFly. Hard teaching. That barely encapsulates it, right? Like, this dude just said, drink my blood. Do you think you would want to follow him very, very much further? What a strange teaching. And yet he's connecting it to the Exodus story, which, of course, is richly laden with the motif of freedom and God's salvation, redemption, and him fighting for the oppressed. And Jesus says, guess what, y'all? They ate that bread. They ate that food that came down from the sky, but they all dead now. Now look who's here. And it says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. You'd think that at some point along the journey, the disciples just started knowing, like, Jesus knows my thoughts. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I don't know. Apparently they didn't, but I might have thought about at some point, like, listen, this dude, mm -mm. I ain't about to talk no more. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, <laughs> does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus said, wait, 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 guys, don't, uh, no, don't, don't leave, don't leave. I was only kidding. I didn't really mean my flesh and blood. No, 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 that was just a metaphor. See, what I really meant, no, this is what he said. He said, y'all want to leave too? Jesus asked this to the 12. Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a hard teaching. If you were here last week, this is another course in organic chemistry with Jesus. This is thermodynamics and fluids for you engineering students out there that got weeded out by those classes. This is Jesus weeding people out. Large crowds. Why were there large crowds? Because Jesus had just made 12 baskets of bread feed everybody. You think that's going to draw a crowd? One of our tactics on college campuses, bring food. People will show up. That's right. Hey, I got a slice of pizza for you. Want some Jesus? People come out be like, I'll take that pizza. No, I don't want no Jesus. Uh-uh. That's what's happening right here. People start eating miraculously. They're like, oh, dude, I'm coming. There's more food. And Jesus says, yo, check this out. You got to eat this. And they're like, huh? No, I'm not interested in no Bible talk. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Nope. Mm -mm. And Jesus looks at his closest friends, the people who've been following him, who've left everything, jobs, families, money, homes. They're literally sleeping out in the wilderness for years. And Jesus goes, y'all want to go too? Today, we would look at Jesus and say, that's not very loving. That's so mean. How uncaring of my feelings. And Jesus says, you want to leave too? 
This is true love. And this is a component, just one component of love that I think is vastly missing for many of us. The Bible is chock full of examples of this kind of thing happening. And as we're talking about this series of disciple, what it means to be a follower, notice the language here. From this time, many disciples stopped following. Disciple, we defined last week, pupil, learner, student. Did you know that you could become a student, a pupil, a learner, a disciple, and at some time decide to stop being a student, a learner, a follower? At some point, many could turn back and no longer follow him. Did you know that? Did you know you could choose to be a disciple, a pupil, a learner, a follower, and then at some point in life, through whatever circumstance, whatever crossroads you intersect with, maybe it's trying to eat and drink Jesus' body and blood, whatever it is, and you go, mm, not no more, too much. I'm going the other way. I'm going back where I came from. And then I love Peter's response. This is what I've been told is a life verse for me. A life verse is one of these verses that you just connect with so much that it just kind of like is the archetype of how you want to build your whole life. Peter's response is a life verse for me. Where am I going to go? Yo, that's hard. I ain't going to lie. That's hard. Okay, Jesus, this is tough. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. He who looks at a woman lustfully is committed. Okay, okay, that's hard. Okay, that's tough. <laughs> yep. But where am I going to go? Back? I'm going to go back where I came from? No, 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 no. This is tough, but it's way better than that. I love Peter's response here. Was, was Peter perfect? No. That homeboy dipped to the first sign of trouble, didn't he? He's like, I'm ready to die with you tonight. Let's go. Pulls out a sword and everything, ready to go. Jesus says, put it up. He's like, uh, excuse me? Oh, no, I'm out of here. Nope, 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 nope. You going to willingly die? No, thanks, bro. I thought we were doing something else around here, you know what I'm saying? But he comes back. Jesus reinstates him. Peter ends up willingly giving up his life, traditionally reported as being crucified upside down. We stumble and fall when we follow Jesus. But do you have this heart? No matter how hard it gets, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Jesus who is the exact representation of God. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God walking around in human life. He turns to his closest followers, his dearest friends. He says, sorry, guys, I don't mean to offend you. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings or make this harder on you. I know it's been hard. You've struggled. You've left your mom and daddy. You left your job. Now you're out here, I'm sorry. John gives us no indication of that. John gives us this picture of Jesus that's like cold-blooded, man. I mean, like cold. Just like, dang, really, Jesus? It's like that? You'd think he'd have a little bit more compassion on his boys, you know? Mm -mm, nope, just go ahead. You want to leave too? I'm not going nowhere. Oh, my Lord. Yo, that's a different kind of love. Check this out. Look at Mark 10. You know, guys, I, I'm talking about this stuff, but this is so challenging for me. You know, and if I'm honest, like, I do think that 
to be fair, like some of this is what was really alluring and attractive to me about Jesus. You know, because I don't know if you've noticed, but you know, I kind of have a disposition of maybe a little bit more of an intense personality. But I was like, okay, Jesus, I see. You ain't, you ain't playing around. I'm not either. I'm like, if there's, if there's really a hell, I ain't playing around. I ain't trying to go there. So this was appealing to me. I think partly because the Jesus that I had been accustomed to up to this point when I actually you know, read what Jesus said was the fluffy Jesus. It was the soft Jesus, the Jesus with the long brown flowing hair and the crystal blue eyes and the pale white skin. That was the Jesus I knew. And he usually had a little ewe lamb in his arms. And I thought, that's, that's, the, that's the creator of the universe. And then I started reading some of this stuff and I was like, oh boy, that creator looked bloody to me. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. We'll end here. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so if this is a newer passage to you, let me set this up. This dude is coming to Jesus, referring to him as good teacher. There's a deference there. Remember disciple, student, learner, pupil, teacher, okay? Like he's establishing the relational dynamic. He's on his knees. There's submission here. And he has a particular question, something that's very important to him. And he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? You could have an entire sermon series about that statement. Uh, I don't know what's all going on there, but Jesus is also showing submission to his heavenly father. And Jesus answers, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And if that was me, I would have been like, dang, all right, I got a lot of work to do then. You know what I'm saying, Jesus? Thanks for the tips. All right. Woo, whole life got to change. This dude says, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. That dude way better than me and probably most of us, Okay. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. I love that Mark includes that statement. As though he wanted to leave his audience, no doubt. This is what true love looks like. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad. Lupe because he had great wealth. God's love creates sorrow. For this man, it created sorrow because Jesus touched the pain point of what was really most important in his heart. Does every person who follows Jesus have to sell everything and give it to the poor? No, not necessarily. But Jesus said, if you're gonna come follow me, you gotta be willing to let go of whatever's in your heart. Whatever you idolize, whatever you worship, whatever's really most valuable to you, if it ain't eternal life, it's got to go. And guess how many of us turn away and walk away sad? And where do we turn away and walk away sad to? Church. Everything's cool. I love Jesus. And Jesus is trying to love us. And you know, God's love is enough to bring separation Biblical love is not coddling. It's not codependent. It doesn't enable. Biblical love enjoices with the truth, even if that truth brings a sword and causes separation and division. 
we all have a choice to be loved by God and to love him in return, to learn to love other people like he loves us. But if we choose to do that, it will not always feel good. The Bible teaches that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Do wounds feel good? My little boy fell on the playground yesterday, got a little scrape on his hand. You would have thought that boy's hand got cut off. He's hooting and hollering and crying. He was tired, but, you know, I'm like, dude, it's like a millimeter of skin got taken off your hand, you know? But, man, he was in pain. We got him all bandaged up, and, you know, we worked it out, and we hugged it out, and he's fine. But, you know, sometimes when we love each other in a true love kind of way, there are going to be wounds. There are going to be things that hurt. We decide how to interpret that. Again, the culture, the counterfeit love would tell us that if it hurts, it's not true. It's not love. You're not treating me lovingly. God says, no, not true at all. My love is enough to actually wound you, and our love for each other is enough to do that as well. If you have long-standing, close Christian relationships and no wounds, are ever derived, you've got to ask yourself, are those relationships really loving? I think Christian relationships, by and large, in most churches are characterized by kisses. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. We come in and we say, great to see you, sing kumbaya, hope you're doing well, great sis bro. All the while, people's lives in a complete mess. Because why? We want to keep a facade of a counterfeit love. We want to be nice, and we think that's love. Jesus wasn't nice, y'all. He was loving, but he wasn't nice. People don't crucify nice people. Jesus was incredibly offensive. And I think that today, the truth of Jesus is going to become more and more offensive So true love, if we're going to be a disciple, true love is defined by God and what he is like, not by culture, not by what feels good, not by how we want to define it. God is love, and so we must define love according to God. And we've got to allow ourselves to be trained, to make effort, struggle, consistency, that true love doesn't always feel good. We've got to learn that all difficulty is not bad. It doesn't mean that something bad is happening to us. Quite the opposite. It could be that our character, our lives, our relationships, our souls are actually being saved, refined, purified, and that an easy button everywhere is not actually a good thing. There are a lot of dangers in trying to put an easy button everywhere. Jesus does not coddle. And so as disciples of Jesus, as pupils of Jesus, we've got to learn how to not coddle each other. That doesn't mean being harsh. It doesn't mean being unnecessarily insensitive. It means loving the truth and being willing to stand for the truth no matter the consequences. This is what biblical true love looks like. It means that we do not avoid difficult conversations. 
whether it's with people that we're trying to bring to Jesus or people we're trying to help keep following Jesus. We cannot avoid difficult conversations. We've got to side with Jesus and the truth and not care so much about what other people think about us. That is one of the main idolatries in all of our hearts. We want people to like us more than God. And this is inherent of what it means to be a disciple maker. Did you know that you cannot make a follower of Jesus without conflict? Did you know inherently embracing Jesus and choosing to follow him means that you are a sinner, an enemy of God who has rebelled against the creator and caused mass destruction in your life and the life of others? Did you know that brings conflict? Did you know that we as humans, we don't really like to hear those kinds of things about ourselves? Did you know that? If you didn't know, go try this week. Go try to share the gospel of Jesus with somebody this week and see what happens. God is drawing some, and that's awesome. And I'm excited that there are many right now that are in the scriptures, and God is drawing their hearts to embrace life that is truly life. But we've got to be willing. We've got to be willing to step into the ring of conflict, to step into the ring where truth is at stake because we love. Not because we get some sort of joy or weird, you know, sensation from conflict in and of itself, but because we love. We love people enough to wound them, knowing that those wounds can lead to life. As we get ready to close out here, and I'll pray. You know, consider wounds and kisses in the relationships in your life. I would encourage you to reduce the number of relationships that are defined and characterized by kisses and increase, actively go after trying to cultivate and increase relationships that are willing to wound you. It will go better for you, I promise. It's right there. Because that's how God is willing to love us. And we wanna love like him. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.